Good morning, Discover Church. Man, it is so good to see you this morning. How's everybody feeling today? Good, good, good. Man, it is so good to see you. I'm glad you're here. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Journey, and it's my privilege to be the pastor here. Would love to talk to you, connect with you. I know we've got a lot of uh, new faces today, which is incredible. Man, I'd love to meet you. I'll be out in the lobby after. Before we jump into our message today, I just want to take a minute and just, man, church, I love you. I'm humbled by you. I'm proud of you. Yesterday, we had our Love KC. We were bringing that back. We did that well before COVID. We brought it back. Um, and if you don't know about Love KC, if, if maybe you don't know about that, it's, it's, it's one day that we circle on the calendar where we as a church just go as all over the community and just show the love of Jesus in practical, tangible ways. And man, I'm just so proud of you. Uh, we had over 140 people serving in nine different projects across the city yesterday. And man, I'm just proud of you. Man, man, oh man, oh man. You wanna talk about making a difference. Man, you make a difference when you, when you push someone else's ball down the field and you don't get anything out of it and they ask you why and you can say, because Jesus loves me and he loves you and I'm here just to let you know that. Man, that makes a difference in the world. I'm just proud of you and I, I, I would be totally uh, remiss if I didn't take a minute to just acknowledge the one who kind of spearheaded this uh, and made it happen. Uh, Chris was not even here a year ago. It's not even been a year since he's been here. Um, he had no idea what Love KC was, but uh, I kind of handed that and put that on his desk and I said, please and thank you. And he said, please, sir, can I have another? Um, but man, Chris, I just want to say thank you, man. I, I'm just so blessed by Chris. Our church is blessed by Chris. Our community is blessed by Chris. So if you're thankful for him, man, would you put your hands together and let him know, man. Love you, bro. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, all right, so we're in this series called The Kingdom Manifesto. This is a study through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And in this series, here's what we are learning. We're learning what the kingdom is we're learning how it operates, and we're learning how God's people should live in his kingdom. And the reason why we're studying this is because we talked about last week, there is an epic clash between the, between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And whether you, whether you know it or not, you are caught in the middle of it. And so we are studying Jesus's manifesto to understand from the king how it all works. As we get started, let me ask you a question. How many of you took civics in high school? All right, some of you took civics. Uh, did any of you, when I took civics, I had to memorize the preamble of the Constitution of the United States. Anybody else do that? Can anybody else still remember that? We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, blah, 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 and that's the only part of it that I remember. Um, but I remember as a kid wondering, like, man, what? I mean, the Constitution is really, you know, it's really important. It's this really long document. I mean, of everything that's in there, why do they want us to memorize this? And it took me a while to figure that out. Matter of fact, I was well past college before I realized that what, what a preamble is, a preamble just kind of establishes the big punch at the beginning. A preamble establishes the intent of what we're going to talk about at the beginning. If you don't understand the preamble and understand the point of it all, then you're going to miss or misconstrue or misunderstand the rest of what we're going to write. And what we're going to study today is the preamble of the kingdom manifesto. These are Jesus's opening words to his sermon on the mount as it's been called, we're calling it his manifesto. And if we don't understand the preamble, if we don't understand the beginning, then there's gonna be a lot of other things that aren't gonna make sense. 
And what we're going to see as we dive into the God's word today in Matthew chapter five, you can go ahead and get there. We're going to get there in just a second. Matthew chapter five. What we're going to understand today is that Jesus does what Jesus so often does is he introduces and talks about things in such a way that doesn't quite meet the expectation that we thought he was going to do or what he's going to talk about. And that's what he's going to do in the preamble and what, what people call the Beatitudes today, that Jesus is going to identify what is most significant to him. And right off the bat, what we're going to see is that Jesus is going to do some things a little bit differently than what, what people would have known or expected. Um, he's going to he's going to lead into some things, and through his preamble, he is going to establish that uh, two significant things about his kingdom that that hit us kind of between the eyes, but but does so in a way that kind of makes us scratch our head. And the first thing that we're going to understand uh, about Jesus's kingdom that that if we can get past our own self interest and past our own self righteousness and past our own selfishness that we're going to see that Jesus' kingdom is two things. Number one, Jesus' kingdom is upside down, meaning he takes so much of conventional wisdom that man understands and knows, and he flips it on its head. We're going to see this throughout the summer as we dive into uh, into the the word for word, verse by verse through this section of scripture, and we're going to see over and over and over again, he's going to flip things upside down from what people expect. One of the things that we know about in this world is that normally the people who are seen as successful, normally the people who are esteemed are the people who are willing to assert themselves, stand up for themselves, be proud of themselves. If you elevate yourself or defend yourself, then you will be seen as somebody who is likely successful. Certainly in this kingdom and in this world, while we live on this earth, there is certainly an expectation that you avenge yourself. And perhaps of all of these things that we see, perhaps no more prevalent than the world that we're living in today, is that in this world, people have a tendency to serve themselves. These are the things and these are the attributes, the character qualities, the character traits of the things that are typically rewarded on earth when we live. But what we're going to see is that Jesus is going to reveal a whole different character trait. He's going to reveal a whole different uh, uh, MO of of his people and how they should operate, different traits that, that they should adopt, that when we read these things, if we're being completely honest, we would associate some of the things that Jesus is going to put together. And if we were to look at the sum total of the picture that Jesus paints of the kingdom characteristics that he wants for his people, they would typically be things that we would associate with the losing team, not the winning team. And so Jesus establishes right off the bat that his kingdom is upside down. The second thing that Jesus is going to establish off the bat is that his kingdom is inside out. And what I mean by that is that Jesus is less concerned about about what we do than he is about who we are. Now, if you have spent time not in church, or maybe if you're here as a skeptic or a critic of church, maybe you're a skeptic of God because you've spent too much time around church people. And you hear that statement that God's not so much concerned about what you do as he is concerned about who you are, you might go, uh, I would offer a sharp rebuttal to that point. Because so much of our perception, our understanding of God's word is about uh, behavioral management. 
But we are going to see today that God's, Jesus' kingdom is inside out, that he's infinitely more concerned about what happens on the inside because what Jesus knows is that, that the world has been consumed with trying to solve internal problems with external solutions. I can make my marriage better if I just do better. I can be a better parent if I just read the right book. Um, I'll do better at work. I'll be a better boss. I'll be a better employee if I'll just do the right things. But what Jesus is going to paint for us today and throughout his kingdom manifesto is that the things that we do externally are ultimately a byproduct of who we are internally. And if all we ever do is try to solve the external issue without addressing the internal problem, then we'll end up either frustrated or self-righteous. And what Jesus is going to proclaim to us is that he has come to bring a message of good news. But this message is incredibly difficult and remarkably challenging. But he is going to establish right off the bat that his message is good news because it comes with a blessing. And the blessing is ultimately what leads us to understand how we can experience true happiness. So if, you grew, if you're with me this morning, are you ready to dive into Matthew chapter five? Let me hear you say, I'm with you. Here we go, Matthew chapter five and verse one, it says this, and seeing the multitudes, he went up on the mountain and when he was seated, his disciples came to him and then he opened his mouth and he taught them saying. Now, a couple little thoughts here uh, before we get too deep into this. First, I want you to notice, and as I told you, as we go through this series this summer, I'm gonna point out some different nuggets, it's gonna be a little different rhythm and pacing. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to do a little bit more teaching to help you unpack and see more of God's word. When it says that he was seated, this is significant because in Jesus' day, when a rabbi sat down, it it meant that they were beginning to start uh, a, a series of, of significant and authoritative teachings. If he was standing, it would have been considered informal, but when he sits down, it's considered formal. And Jesus begins to open his mouth and, and he begins to, to teach and he sees the multitudes. The multitude is consisted of a number of different groups of people. There are his closest followers, which are his disciples, and you meet them as you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospels in the Bible. Then there's a group of kind of peripheral followers, people who are intrigued um, and have heard some of his teaching and are beginning to kind of, kind of follow him. And he's beginning to build a little bit of a following. Um, and, then, and then the last group of people is just kind of people who heard that somebody was in town and they wanted to see what was up. And so, so that's why there's these multitudes that are here. And before Jesus begins to speak, it's important that we understand the context that Jesus speaks this into. Because when we understand the context that Jesus speaks this into, we're going to see that the message of his manifesto is just as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago when he spoke it. I want to help you understand some of the context by helping you understand a little bit of the religious system that Jesus was walking into, the Jewish systems. There were four basic types of leaders that, that kind of uh, filled the spot of the, of the leadership of the Jewish system. All right, and I'm just, gonna, I'm just gonna tell you on the front end, you might wanna buckle up because this is gonna be a bumpy ride and some of this might sound like looking in a mirror. You've been warned. The first group of people are the Pharisees. You've heard of them, undoubtedly. These are the people who were, uh, these were, were, were leaders who were stuck in legalistic adherence to all of the scriptures and, and not just the scriptures, but also all of the rituals, all of the rules, all of the extra things. 
These were the people who had a hard time uh, accepting anything new. These were traditionalists, and typically, any time that they looked at something that was that was standing in front of them, their response typically was to say, "Man, let's go back. Let's go back to how things used to be. Let's go back to how things were." The second group of people in the religious uh, system are the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees were the religiously liberal group of people. These were the people who were so focused on, uh, on progress and, and being progressive and, and moving the dial and moving the needle, so much so that they would be willing to sacrifice Scripture or the, 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 the system or the rituals in order to be able to advance their personal agenda. Typically, when Sadducees came to something that was new, something that was standing in front of them, what they would say is, man, let's go further. Like, I see what we got going on here. How can we move further? How can we advance the needle? Let's be more progressive, no matter what it costs when it comes to the the foundational things of the faith that we hold. The third group of people are the people that we don't really talk about a lot. We don't, they're not really mentioned, in, at least that I have noticed in my study of scripture by name, but study of history tells us that there's another group of people called the Essenes. These were people who were known for their, um, the, the fanatical measures that they would take to try to avoid anything that was perceived by them to be wrong in the world. They would oftentimes go and, and live in compounds like monks would, And they would completely cut off the world so that they would have no opportunity to be tainted by anything in the world. This was a group of people that was so heavenly minded that they were really no earthly good. And when they looked at something new, they oftentimes were uh, responded by saying, man, let's get away from this. Let's just shut it down. Let's cut it off and let's go back to our happy place. Let's bury our heads back in the sand and let's just go to us four and no more. And the last group of people was a group of people called the Zealots. The Zealots were fanatical nationalists. These were a group of people who right religion for them meant political activism. So much so that they looked down on other Jews who were unwilling to pick up arms to fight against the Roman government. So when something new presented itself to the Zealots, their response was like, oh, okay. Well, let's just rebel against that. Let me go get my boys and we'll get our toys and we'll come up and we'll show you who do you think you are because I'm going to show you who I am. These are the four groups of people and it's crazy because when I look across the church today, I don't know, maybe I'm the only one, but when I look at the big C church and sometimes when I am honest with myself and I look into the depths of my own soul, I see some similarities here into what we see in the church today, and I see some similarities here, unfortunately, even in my own life. And what we see is that Jesus, throughout the course of his ministry, has a, has a, a message for each one of these groups of people. To the Pharisees, Jesus' message is ultimately, listen, y'all got it mixed up. What is most important is what is internal, not external. To the Sadducees, he says, listen, God's way, not man's way, is what is most important. You've got it, you missed it. To the Essenes, he tells them what matters most are the issues of the heart, not not the body. And to the Zealots, he, he teaches them that what is most important is worship, not revolution. 
And all of this serves as the backdrop that Jesus sits down amongst these multitudes and he begins to teach. And what we're going to do is we're going to work through these these kingdom character qualities that Jesus is going to establish for his people. We're going to work through these one by one. I'm going to unpack it one by one. And we're going to start in Matthew chapter five and verse three, when Jesus says this, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. Now, what we have to understand here is that in every single one of these instances, there's a, there's a cadence that Jesus follows. He, he, he starts by saying bless. This word bless means happy. So anytime you see the word bless, I want you to literally think happy is the person who, and then he's going to insert a kingdom character trait that he wants us to live by and abide by that happens in the progress of as he changes us to be more like him. And then he's going to prescribe a blessing that is going to be the cause for that happiness. All right. So Happy is the person who does this, and then I'm going to bless you. So all of these are conditional promises that Jesus is making in the preamble of his manifesto. And what he's saying here when he says, blessed are the poor, he's not talking about spiritual poverty. All right, there's going to be some things that we're going to deconstruct. Uh, I heard it said one time that sometimes one of the hardest things about learning the Bible is unlearning what you've been taught about the Bible. And so what I'm going to do is there's been some things that that some of this stuff has been taken out of context with the best of intentions. I'm going to try to teach you what Jesus intended uh, as I'm studying the original language and working through and, and piecing it together. But what he's talking about here are not people who are physically poor. He's literally talking about about people who are spiritually bankrupt. In the same way that somebody who is poor and destitute might beg for food, Jesus is referring to someone who is spiritually destitute, spiritually bankrupt, someone who spiritually understands they have no standing, they have no right even to be in the presence of God, they have no right even to be able to talk to God, yet God has allowed an audience with them so that they can, they can converse with God, they can have a conversation with God, and, and these are spiritual beggars that have come to the foot of the cross of Jesus, recognizing that they have nothing to offer. And they come to Jesus in this posture of spiritual depravity. And what Jesus says is that happy is that person because they receive the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is establishing a framework that that there is no room for, for spiritual pride in his kingdom. In fact, in Revelation chapter, uh, chapter three, Jesus writes and speaks to uh, one of the seven churches that he talks to in Revelation. This is what he says as he speaks to the spiritually proud. He says, because you say I am rich, I have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are rich, uh, wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. You see, he goes on to say, because of this, I will spit you out of my mouth. What Jesus is trying to get across is that there's no room. There's no, there's no room for spiritual pride. There's no room for anyone to be able to be in the presence of God, in the kingdom of God, and believe that they got there by their own ability, that they got there because they did something. Jesus is saying, blessed are those who are the spiritual beggars who recognize that you have nothing to offer because these are the true believers And these are the kingdom citizens. Can I just tell you today, if you're here and if anyone has ever taught you or anyone has ever led you to believe that that, that the way that you get to heaven is, is Jesus plus something that you do, I'm sorry to tell you that they're not teaching you the true gospel of Jesus. 
Because Jesus doesn't say, blessed are the, the, the spiritual middle class. But blessed are, blessed are the, uh, the, 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 the not so rich, but also not so poor. He's not saying blessed are those that are hoping that you, you, you paid enough taxes so that you get a tax return at the end of the year. He's saying blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt. This is ground zero, by the way, for the kingdom of God. If you want to be a part of the kingdom of God, if you want to know that you can have a home in heaven, this is where it starts. He goes on and he teaches, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, this is another verse. A lot of people have used this verse um, with all the best intentions. Um, oftentimes when someone's going through hardship or when there's grief or something like that that's happening, but that's not what Jesus is talking about here. If you think about it, it actually doesn't really make a lot of logical sense that Jesus would say, happy is the person who is grieving. That doesn't make sense. It doesn't compute. What is going on here? What Jesus is getting across here is that he's saying that happy is the person who mourns or the person who grieves the condition of the world and the impact of sin. What he's saying is, um, and, and what he's painting a picture of is, is the example, and maybe you've been here either as a child or, or maybe you've been here as a parent, but when a child uh, does something wrong, right? Like they, they broke the vase, um, they, they disrespected somebody, uh, they stayed out too late past curfew, whatever the case may be, um, and the child knows that they did something that was wrong and they're fessing up to it, all right? We're not talking about, the, we're not talking about a scenario when they're denying it, like I did not know, I did not uh-uh, I didn't have the ice cream. I don't know how all this chocolate got all over me. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the moment when the child fesses up. And, and in my house, both growing up, but also even now as a parent, typically when these moments happen, it's usually accompanied with some tears, some crying, some obvious sorrow. When Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, what he's talking about is the moment that happens when the parent responds to the genuine grief and the genuine sorrow that the child has, and though there may be some consequences for the action, the parent wraps their child up and responds to recognizing that they know they messed up and they're fessing up to it, they're taking ownership for it, the grief is obvious upon them, and they wrap their child in their arms and say, baby, but I I love you and there's nothing you can do to ever change that. I love you now. I loved you before you did it. I love you even though you did it and I will never stop loving you. That's what Jesus is talking about here. What he's talking about is the type of mourning, the type of grief that happens that comes from a godly sorrow. Paul talked about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. This gives us a little bit more insight to what Jesus is saying here. He says, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, meaning that, that you don't regret, you, you regret what you did and you're repenting, but you don't regret the act of repenting and getting right with God. He goes on to say, and it leads to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. You know what he's saying? He's saying the sorrow and the grief and, the, and all that stuff of the world, it, it, it means it's meaningless. There is no life, there is no hope, there is no good that can come just from, from being sad or upset because, because of something that's happening in the world if it's not connected to a godly sorrow. And then he's gonna tell us, he says, for behold what earnestness this very thing this godly sorrow has produced in you. What Jesus is saying when he says, blessed are those who mourn, he's saying, happy is the person who recognizes 
their sin and is broken and grieved because of that sin, because of the impact that sin has had in their lives and the life of others. What he's getting across here is that happy is the person whose heart is broken for the things that breaks the heart of God. For they shall be comforted. There has never been a moment in the history of man where a person came to a point of repentance and God rejected them. God always meets you there and he will comfort you in that moment. Jesus continues in verse five. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. To understand what Jesus is teaching here, we have to understand what this word meek means. This is not really a word that we use in our English language today, and because it rhymes with weak, people often assume that meekness is the same as weakness, but it's not. It couldn't be further from the truth. The image that is painted by the Greek word that Jesus uses here is the image that would be used when a wild Mustang, a wild colt, is broken and brought under the submission of the rider. That wild horse is not any less strong than it used to be, but its, its independent and wild spirit has been brought under control, has been brought under the submission of the rider. And now, this horse, this wild animal, now that it has been broken, now that it has been tamed, it can begin to serve an incredibly useful purpose. What God is saying here, what Jesus is getting across here, is that when he says that blessed are the meek, he's talking about recognizing that we all have a wild, independent streak in us. I mean, God himself says in his word in in Psalms that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We are created with all of this crazy potential and we have all of this, all of this grit and tenacity and might and we can, we can do a great number of things in our own ability. But what God is saying is that, listen, you won't begin to fully tap into the power that you were created with until you begin to learn to live in meekness, until you learn to allow God to break that wild spirit that is within all of us to come under the submission of the kingship or the lordship, or to put it another way, unto the ruler, which is Jesus. And when we begin to do this, then we begin to understand what Ephesians 2.10 is talking about when it says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, listen, you will never begin to fully understand all that I have designed you to be capable of until you surrender to my authority and my rule as the king of kings in your life. And you can do a lot of things in your own might and your own ability, but not until it comes under my authority will it really move the needle for you. This is, by the way, the reason why when we operate outside of God's authority in our lives, when we don't surrender ourselves to his lordship in our lives, this is why we can, we can do all kinds of crazy cool things in work, in life, in our career. We can accomplish things, yet we still have an emptiness and a void on the inside. Because we're, we're doing all of this stuff in our own strength and in our own ability. We're not doing it under the submission of the Lord so that he can guide us to make sure that every step, every decision that we, that we make has a purpose behind it. Meekness 
is not weakness. It is strength under control. Specifically, it is our ability under the authority of God. This also, by the way, is Jesus was the epitome of. You think about it. He allowed himself to be crucified by people he created on a cross made of a tree that he created on top of a hill that he created so that those same people could experience the life that he always created them for. Strength under control. Jesus goes on to say, in Matthew chapter five, verse six, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they should be filled. This speaks to our appetite, all right? Once we begin, uh, in John chapter four, when Jesus was, uh, he encountered this woman who was, who was at this well. Um, it, was, it was the heat of the day. There's so many things that are going on here. This woman, uh, it was not common that women would be by themselves at the well. Um, they would always be gathered with uh, other ladies. It was usually in the morning, but this woman is by herself in the heat of the day, meaning she's ostracized, she's an outcast, nobody cares about her. Jesus shows up while this woman is, is drawing water from the well and, and he says, hey, give me something to drink, which uh, he actually says, woman, give me something to drink. Now, if you were to walk up to like Starbucks and be like, woman, give me something to drink, particularly at Starbucks, um, that would not be well received. It's a different day, a different culture, and they talk different, but... Jesus has this dialogue and, and he starts talking to her. And this is what he says in verse 13 and 14. He says, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, right? He's referencing the, the water that's in the well that she's, she's pulling up. Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But he, then he goes on to say, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give them shall never thirst you see, what Jesus is talking about is he's referring to himself, he goes on referring to himself as the living water. A, a, a water that, that satisfies us in a way and to a point that, that nothing that we can actually tangibly grab a hold of can ever fully satisfy. And what Jesus is saying is blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, he's, he's getting at our appetite. The, the, the problem with me, and perhaps maybe you, is that oftentimes I get caught up in, in kind of a, a donut spiritual appetite. Now, y'all know I love donuts, all right? I talk about it. It's my favorite food group. Donuts and French fries would be my last meal. Um... But we get caught up in this donut spiritual appetite, and what I mean by that is that... that that we don't fully understand the depth and the richness of the things that God wants to do in us, the things that God wants to do through us, the thing that God wants to do around us. And because of that, we oftentimes just kind of settle with, with things that fill our bellies, things that fill our schedules, things that might even fill our bank account, things that fill up um, uh, our marriages, things that fill up the relationship we have with our kids, things that fill up our homes. We, 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 we look for things to fill up all of these things, yet we still have these cravings and desires for more. And what Jesus is getting at is, is, is he's saying, listen, if you will hunger and thirst for righteousness, if you will allow your appetite to not be for selfishness, 
But for righteousness, which righteousness is a fancy word that speaks to God's absolute and right and only standard, that if your appetite will not be just for the things that gratify or satisfy in a moment, things that might appease something that you feel in a moment, but instead, if you will shift your appetite to something for righteousness, where righteousness won't just be kind of a condiment or an add-on where, where you come to church on Sunday, you might maybe even read your Bible periodically throughout the week, but there's nothing about your life that is really changed by, by what you hear or encounter or experience at church or what you encounter or experience when you open open God's word instead too oftentimes perhaps you open God's word with the hope that you can have your presuppositions and your own opinions validated and confirmed instead of opening the word of God and allowing the absolute authority of the word of God to change your presuppositions in the things you thought to be true once you measured it against the absolute truth of his word. And when you shift your appetite, when you allow your appetite to shift from just kind of a donut spirituality, the Bible actually calls it the, the milk of the word, only just wanting a little bit, just enough to make me feel better, but to the meat of the word and be willing to dive in and say, God, I want to align my life in every way with your absolute holy and just standard. When you hunger and thirst for that, then Jesus says you'll be filled. And not filled in the same way as, as you had experienced before, but filled in a way that finally satisfies what is inside of you. And what Jesus is saying is happy is the person who hungers and thirsts for righteousness because all of their cravings will be satisfied in him. And we won't strive and strain and how, we won't spend any more sleepless nights dealing with the stress of the things that we needed. So we needed that house, we needed that car, we needed to buy those things. So, we, so now we're stressed about the financial situation. Jesus is saying you'll be filled, you'll be satisfied and you'll be able to understand what it means to be content in me. Jesus goes on. In verse seven, he says, blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. Now, this is, this is a tricky one because it's, it, 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 it's, just, it, it's hard to really understand what Jesus is getting at here. But the Greek word for merciful means charitable or beneficial. This is significant that we understand this because oftentimes we read this and we think, oh, well, I just need to have mercy. I just need to have, we oftentimes insert the word compassion for mercy. And I just need to have mercy, I need to have compassion um, and, and, then, and then I'll, ha I'll obtain mercy. I'll obtain compassion from, from God and from others. But that's not what God is saying here. Compassion is a feeling. Mercy is an action. Mercy is what leads us to Go do something. Compassion is what leads us to have pity. Compassion is maybe what leads us to pray. Mercy is what leads us to get up and go do something to make an impact, to have an impact on what's going on in the world around us. And remember, Jesus was speaking this into a culture where, where the, the leadership was teaching and modeled a self-righteousness. Self-righteous people might have compassion but will rarely have mercy because self-righteous people might look at somebody with pity. They might loathe somebody. The self-righteous people are never going to have mercy. They're not going to be moved to action to go do something about it. And Jesus says, listen, I am not just a compassionate 
God. I am a merciful God. I'm going to do something that is charitable and beneficial. This is why he performed miracles. This is why he laid his light down on the cross so that we could experience the life that he desperately wanted for us to have. Now, here's where we have to be careful because this is not Jesus's equation on how to get something from God. Well, if I will give, then I can just, I can just get, it's like a boomerang. I'll just throw it out and God will give it back. And God, you said, so where's my blessing? No, what God is saying here, what Jesus is getting across is that the more prone you are to act mercifully towards others, the more positioned you will be to receive mercy from God. Now, I realize that sounds contradictory to what I just said, but here's the point. The point is, is that the more that your life goes into action, exhibiting mercy, being looking for ways to be beneficial or charitable, the more that you do that, the more that you position yourself for God to be able to move in your life in a charitable or beneficial way. But God is not saying, you know, if you'll just, you know, pretend to do this so that you can get something. Basically, what I'm trying to say is, is that God says, you can't play a player. You can't manipulate me. Because I know who you really are. I know what's in your heart. And if your heart is trying to do something from a self-righteous, self-interest, self-seeking way, I'm going to stiff arm that because that's pride and I reject it. But when you, when you continually position yourself out of the purity of your heart to act in a beneficial and a, in a, in a merciful way in the world around you, then God goes, I see that. I got you. And we position ourselves to receive mercy from the Lord. This, by the way, is the reason why we do things like love KC. Because God tells us to be merciful. You with me? Let's continue. Verse 8, it says, blessed are the pure in heart. Now, the religious leaders in Jesus' day, um, they, they thought that they were uh, uh, demonstrating how holy they were. They thought that they would be closer to God if they did all of these uh, super pious, uh, super holy, spiritual looking things. But God, Jesus is saying, blessed are the pure in heart for they are the ones that shall see God. What Jesus wanted us to understand is that, that I, I don't care about what you look like when you come to church on a Sunday morning. Man made the idea of your Sunday best. Jesus never did. Jesus condemned the religious leaders of his day for putting on their Sunday best, going out on the street corners with all of their fancy clothing and praying in super uh, fancy King James English because, you know, that's how everybody's always prayed and, and pray on a street corner. And Jesus actually said, he actually at a point in time, he told his disciples, you see that dude? Don't be like that. Instead, you go into your closet in the private and the quiet when no one but me can see you. And there's where I will meet you. See, what happens is, is that Jesus is wanting us to understand that at the moment of our salvation, the moment that you cry out for Jesus to save you, to forgive you of your sins, that that moment, the Bible says, that you are separated from your sin. All of the stuff that you've done, you are separated from your sin as far as the east is from the west. He purifies you. You have a clean heart. 
But as long as you're still alive, you have a sin nature that is desperately trying to, to, uh, to litter and to soil and to make dirty what God has made clean. This is the epic clash between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness in your life. And what Jesus is saying is, blessed are the pure in heart. He says, listen, I understand that I know who you are. I know how you are made. I know that you have a sinful nature. But he's still saying, blessed are the pure in heart. He says, listen, I want you to to open your heart to me. You see, I think one of the problems that we have in church is, and and not necessarily when we're at church, but, but when we leave church, is I believe that we spend way too much time concerned about how we address God, and that leads us to thinking that we have to be super formal and how we approach him. But can I just tell you, God sees past your Instagram reel. He knows who you really are. You don't have to be formal. Be raw. Be real. And the more raw and real you are, what you're saying is, is you're, you're opening up your soul and you're opening up your life. You're saying, God, I'm confessing this darkness. I'm giving you access to come in and to, and, and to see it. And I ask for forgiveness for it. Would you cleanse it? Would you heal it? Would you forgive it? And God always promises that he will. And what Jesus is saying is blessed are those who are pure in heart. Blessed are those who, who continue to fight the fight of confession, who, 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 who seek to have a short list of sins because you're, you're quickly acknowledging and you're quickly recognizing and you're quickly going to the Father saying, God, forgive me, I messed up. Jesus, I know you died on the cross for my sins. I claim your blood to forgive me. Jesus, would you help me to walk away from that and to walk in truth in following you? He says, those are the people who will see God. What's interesting is what we read here is that for they shall see God. The original language of the Greek is probably more accurately translated, for they shall continue to see God. Meaning, this this isn't just like a one-time mountaintop moment. He's saying that I want you to know that you have continual access to me, not just when you're in this room, but in any room. You have continual access to see me when you continue to fight for your heart to be pure. Next, he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. At the root of the good news is the understanding that man and God are at opposition because man chose to sin against God because sin is the enemy of peace. Jesus came as the Prince of Peace to make all of that right through his cross. And what he calls us to do as his people is that we look for opportunities as much as is possible within our power to bring peace to situations where there is animosity or division. That doesn't mean that we meddle in other people's business. It doesn't mean that we're constantly, listen, some of y'all, some of y'all find yourselves in situations in the middle of the drama, not because Drama finds you, but because you keep going to find it. Y'all are losing sleep at night. You, you, you got, you know, your heart's palpitating. You, you're, you're stressed out and freaked out about people's drama that's not even your drama. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about, what Jesus is talking about, is that when we find ourselves in situations when conflict has found us, when we're standing in the middle of it, He's saying we should follow the example of Jesus to be peacemakers. Bring peace as much as possible with people. 
It's like when he says, so then when he says, for uh, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God, what he's saying is, it's almost like receiving a commendation in the Lord's army for a job well done. In the military, when you receive ribbons and pins and badges, they don't always come with a promotion, and it doesn't mean that you're, you're now in a different army or anything like that. No, it's a part of the job description that you do certain things, but what, what, what the military does is they identify certain things and go, hey, job extremely well done, we're going to give you a badge, we're going to give you a ribbon, and you'll wear that on your uniform. And people in the military can look at people's uniforms and all the ribbons and medals and things, and they just immediately know, I know what that's for, I know what that's for. Hey, what's the story behind you getting that ribbon. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, blessed are the peacemakers because when you are that kind of person, you should be called the sons of God. It doesn't mean that you have to do this to earn your salvation, but it means you begin walking in your namesake as a child of God. The flip side of this, if we're quarrelsome or divisive, that seems to be what happens when you show up in scenarios then you are either not walking as a child of God because you're not a child of God or you're walking in total disobedience because he calls us to be peacemakers. And then lastly, Jesus gives us one final character trait that he's going to expand on. This is what it says. It says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice it follows the same format, but what Jesus does, unlike any of these other seven things, he is now going to say, hold on just a second. This one is really important. All of them are important, but I need you to understand my heart in this last one. So he explains it. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, what Jesus is doing here on the surface, he's promising a blessing for those who are persecuted because of their faith. Matter of fact, in Revelation, Jesus is going to promise the crown of life to anyone who has endured persecution and even suffered martyrdom because of the way they align their lives to the, to the king of kings. The reality of it is, is that in different ways, all of us in some sense are going to face some sort of persecution if we're walking truly following Jesus. But in order to understand the significance of what Jesus is seeking, we need to zoom out just for a minute and get the whole picture of what he's just said. Because what he's just said is that there are seven character traits that flow in sequential order. One builds on the other. And so, and, and so it works like this. It says it begins by being poor in spirit, realizing that you're closest to God when you most realize that you are a spiritual beggar, recognizing you bring nothing to the table. When you get to that point, that realization will lead you to have a godly sorrow where you grieve and you mourn for the sin that's in your life that caused Jesus to go to the cross and has caused hell and heartache and heartbreak in the life and the world around you. That godly sorrow and mourning should lead to a point of total and complete surrender under the lordship of Jesus so that we can begin to live in meekness under his control and begin to understand how he's wired us and what he's wired us for. 
And then it made a slight turn as things began to change because then we begin to realize and respond to his blessings that we didn't deserve any of it, but he continues to move in response to it and bless us anyway. And that ultimately leads us to changing our appetite to recognizing, man, I'm not getting anything out of living for the world, but as I continue to take baby step after baby step after baby step towards Jesus, my life is changing. It's getting better. I'm beginning to experience more joy and more happiness happiness and it changes our appetite so that I no longer crave to, to be satisfied by the things of this world that gratify selfish desires, but I desire for, for, for selfishness to be replaced by righteousness and disobedience to be replaced by obedience. And this new revelation of righteousness should ultimately lead us to become people of action, living mercifully towards others in a way that is charitable and beneficial and is making a difference in the world around me. as we live and walk in this and we see the goodness of God at work in us and through us, it makes us want to open our hearts to him and give him greater access to touch things that we feel like he would be embarrassed by, to heal things that we've been crippled by, and to forgive us things that it, from things that have held us back from walking in the fullness of what he wants for us so that we can see him fully. And then when we begin to see all of this, we begin to look for ways to make peace around us. Because our life has been so impacted and so changed by the Prince of Peace, we look for opportunities to make peace, not just make peace relationally with the people around us, but ultimately to love people and to serve people so they can come in contact with the Prince of Peace who can bring, pre, who can bring peace to the chaos that is in their soul. What Jesus is promising us is that if you choose to live by these seven kingdom characteristics, you will endure persecution. You might be made fun of by friends and family. You might be fired from your workplace. We have brothers and sisters in Christ across the globe who are literally giving their lives because they're choosing to align themselves with the king of kings and not with the ways of this world. What Jesus is promising is when you go through that persecution, be encouraged because you're in good company. Because the pages of scripture is filled with people who were mocked persecuted and even killed for choosing to align their lives in every way with the kingdom of light over the kingdom of darkness. And what Jesus is wanting us to understand is that we, we, we shouldn't be surprised by this because in John's gospel, in John chapter one, when it's describing Jesus, this is what it says. It says, in him, Jesus was life and the life was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. We are in an epic battle between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And every single person who has come to a point of salvation in Jesus has been translated, transformed, recruited from the armies of the kingdom of darkness and wooed by his love and compassion and mercy into his marvelous light and we are forever changed and the world is going to persecute you when you begin to live for the king of light because the darkness doesn't 
understand it. Because the darkness doesn't understand it, the darkness's typical response is to respond with opposition. Self-preservation. Don't be shining that light in my eyes. It makes me uncomfortable. But in the same way, your eyes adjust to the light in the morning when you wake up and the sun is shining through the windows. Over time, the way God works is his love and his light will continue to shine into the darkness. And in time, people will have an opportunity to realize what they've been missing. Jesus tells us, be encouraged when you're persecuted. The world hated you because it hates me. The world hates me because it doesn't fully understand me because the kingdom of darkness keeps telling lies about who I really am. The promise of blessing, by the way, in this particular beatitude will reveal itself in one of two ways. Some of us, a select few, will experience this promise of understanding what it means for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Some of you will experience that promise here on earth just in the way that Joseph and Daniel in the Old Testament did. Continually mocked, continually persecuted, continually ridiculed and chastised and punished. Multiple attempts to kill them. While they served in a pagan kingdom under a pagan king, For those two in the Old Testament, God did bless them and position them in positions of significance and influence and authority. And the impact of that is more than I can share in a couple of minutes. Some of you will experience that blessing here on earth. But all of us who call in the name of Jesus for salvation will experience that blessing in eternity. When we realize that we finally and fully get to see and have a connection and relationship with this king of glory, the king of light, the king of kings. This is Jesus's preamble to his kingdom manifesto. It reveals his greatest priority That it's not about what we do externally, but about what we do internally in response to who he is creating us to be as we see and respond to his love. And as we align our lives to his love and grace, we see the blessings that flow, blessings of true happiness. And so what is our takeaway? It's this, that true happiness isn't something we can fabricate. We can't will it to happen. We can't acquire enough stuff to make it so. 
according to the King of Kings. True happiness is a blessing that God gives in response to living a life that is fully surrendered to the King of the Kingdom of Light. At Discover Church, we exist to see our city changed by Jesus, one life at a time. If you'd like to take your next step of faith today, text the word FAITH to 816-203-1835. Again, that's the word FAITH to 816-203-1835. If this is your first time listening, we'd love to connect. Reach out to us on social media and let us know that you found us through the Discover Church podcast. Thanks for listening.